Amen. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Um, if we don't know each other, my name is Matt. I get to be the associate pastor here. And uh, just to uh, reiterate the excitement about the potluck uh, coming up, they're a lot of fun. And, and we were kind of talking as a staff this week, and when you hear the word potluck, that may have negative connotations to it, depending on you know where you grew up or, or maybe the church you went in. All my, when I hear potluck, I get excited because I spent the first 12 years of my life in South Georgia. So it was like a southern comfort soul food, all-you-can-eat buffet church potlucks were. But um, when we're talking about back home, kind of, the, kind of the, the, behind that, kind of the thinking was, as we were talking as a staff is, uh, we were counting, we, we have in our church family here at Fellowship Asheville, uh, right around like seven different nationalities represented. And then uh, within the U.S., I mean, people from all over the, the U.S., uh, like let me just ask, uh, raise your hands, how many people are like from Asheville, or at least like an hour radius? Okay, so kind of a, kind of a, a small crew. So the rest of us back home could be all, all kinds of stuff. And so it's always fun to see, you know, kind of the things different bring, you know, people bring or when they talk about back home. So that's kind of, kind of the thing the, behind that. Um, today we're going to continue in. Uh, the Gospel According to Mark, and so if you, you know, maybe this is your first Sunday, or you've just been uh, jumping in the last few Sundays, or joining us online, um, we've been, we started after Easter last year, and we're going through the Gospel of Mark, so in the New Testament, it's the second book, um, and it's just kind of an ancient biography of a man named Jesus who came from a place called Nazareth. And so we've been looking at the life and the ministry and the words of Jesus, who now we know as Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ uh, most popularly. And so we've been kind of going verse by verse, uh, slowly, carefully through the book. But today, we are going to go through the entire chapter 13. Okay? And some of you just got real nervous because you're like, Matt, you go between 35 and 40-ish minutes with like a few verses. But we're really, we're going to, we're not going to go really like verse by verse through the whole, the whole chapter because uh, Jesus summarizes the whole chapter um, with the last few verses. And so uh, we're really going to focus in on the last like seven or eight verses. Um, but v- before we jump in, uh, let, me, let me pray again for us and then, uh, and then we'll kind of get into it here. Uh, Jesus, thanks for your word. Um, as we're going to read in a little bit, um, heaven and earth will pass away but your word will never pass away. So it's as we open your word, as we hear it, as it's taught to us, Holy Spirit, as you illuminate the truths and the goodness to it, uh, to us from it, uh, be with us today, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So the reason we're kind of covering the whole chapter is, like I said, it's kind of summarizing the last few verses. And in the Gospel of Mark, uh, it's kind of like an action story, like comic book. Like it's this happened, then this happened, then that said. And there's no really like long, lengthy discourses or stories. This is actually only the second kind of long discourse that makes up a whole chapter in the Gospel, um, in the whole kind of biography that Mark wrote. And so... uh, as we're looking at it today, uh, what it is, it comes at the, the end of kind of a lengthy section uh, that we, we kind of closed last week where the authority of Jesus was being questioned by the religious and community leaders at the time. Um, and this passage of Scripture, if you grew up in, in uh, certain kinds of churches, you're, you might be really familiar with this chapter. Um, because it's been kind of used as like talking about the signs of the end times and stuff like that. Um, I, 
I don't think that's the, the message Jesus is trying to get across. And so as we kind of look at the last few verses, let me just give an outline. So if you, go, if you want to go back and read it later and, and think through it, just kind of an outline of how the chapter is set up and how Jesus comes about it. And then we're going we're gonna to kind of focus on, like I said, the last few verses. So, so what Jesus is doing here in this passage is they're, they're looking at the temple and the magnificence of the temple. So in the first two verses, um, Jesus is kind of kind of responding to the the disciples talking about how big and like you know it says look what massive stones what magnificent buildings and then Jesus just gives them a quick kind of one verse summary of the things that he has been teaching them over the course of the three years of his ministry he, he's reminding them things like magnificence doesn't equal value that riches don't last into eternity and that prominence does not equal permanence. So those are kind of the things Jesus is reminding him, saying like, hey guys, I'm telling you, like this, this thing's gonna be destroyed like before you guys even die. Like most of you guys are gonna see this thing get, get taken down to the ground. And so then the disciples, naturally curious, like I would wanna be too, they, they ask him two questions. They ask him, all right, so, so when is this gonna happen? Like when is the temple gonna be destroyed? And then they wanna know like what are some signs that we can look for to prepare for that? Like, like how can we know basically like, to avoid it, right? To not be there whenever that happens. And so uh, Jesus answers their second question first. And in verses five through 23, he kind of shows them signs to look forward to for when the, the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple is gonna happen, which we now know it happened in AD 70. Um, verses 24 through 27, Jesus kind of goes on a little bit of... Um, of, as usual, he kind of zooms out and gives the meta story of the universe and what, they're, what he's doing to redeem it. So verses 24 and 27, he, he talks about his return one day, and he kind of reiterates that in the verses we're going to look at later. Um, and then he kind of ends with, with, with this. I'm going to pick up in verse 31, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. So if you have your Bible or your phone or your tablet or whatever, we're going to pick up in Mark 13, verses 31, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Okay, so here, here's what Jesus says. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. About that day, talking about when he's going to return in the future one day, about that day, no one or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So be on guard, be alert. You don't know when that time is going to come. Verse 34, he says, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know when the owner of the house is going to come back, whether it's in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So Jesus left these words for his disciples who have experienced the, the destruction of the temple, the place where God's spirit dwelled and where the, the worship of the Israelite and Jewish people kind of centered around. And he's left these verses, this kind of charge and this warning for the people who are expecting his return one day. So, so these are kind of words to us, us and I'm kind of hoping we, we walk away today being to answer the question, like, what does it mean to watch? Like, does that mean I'm supposed to literally like be watching, like am I, am I supposed to do anything else? Am I supposed to, how am I supposed to live my life with this kind of warning? And, 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 I've, and like I said earlier, I've, I've, kind of, I've heard this preached oftentimes as kind of the end, this whole chapter is kind of the, the end and the signs of the end times coming. Um, I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do here. I don't, I don't think, um, personally, 
that that's biblically or historically or theologically accurate, uh, much less very helpful. Uh, because that, that kind of idea and teaching you, uh, leads to a fearful and anxious approach to God and his plan. Like even reading those words for us, like watch out, the master may be coming. Like we can kind of feel a little bit of a negative and like anxious feeling if you're like me when you read that. But there's no reason to. Jesus gave no reason to think that it's a bad thing that he's coming back one day. Like I think Jesus gave that to us for joyful anticipation to look for his return because aren't we supposed to know that our heavenly father is a good father who wants to give his children's good gift that paid a high price to be able to call us sons and daughters. But there's kind of a few things if we kind of look at these verses as signs of the end times, here's two things it can lead to that that I want to try to steer us away from and get us to, to where, what does it mean to watch? What does it mean to watch for Jesus and watch ourselves? Well, the first, the first thing it does, if, if we kind of look at it as, as fearful, anxious, ridden signs of the end times, is that it leads to anxiety and fear by calculating when the world's going to end. Right, like how many, any, does anybody watch Parks and Rec? Anybody? Okay, so there's this, like, this whole episode, and there's this guy, he runs this whole side business by making flutes for this kind of, and it's all fictional, it's a, it's a made-up story, made-up TV show, but, but he kind of has this whole side business where he makes flutes every year for this group of people who are waiting for this giant reptile to come and destroy the earth and like take everybody home to him. And so it's kind of funny because these people get together, and they're like waiting for midnight, and he's like, oh, it didn't happen again. And he's like, all right, I'll see you next year, and they hand him a check, and they like put another date on the calendar for next year. Like, like some of us, it's kind of a joke, but they kind of made that joke around people who have kind of looked at and like books being written about when the world's going to end and then it just doesn't happen. Because, and, and here's the thing that, that I want to kind of, you know, help us think through, that, that calculation uh, isn't helpful because it just makes you right and want to, want to win arguments. And the Bible wasn't giving, given to us for calculation. It was given to us for conviction. See, Jesus is giving warning through those first verses to the disciples, verses five through 24 about, uh, he was warning them about feeding false hopes, about feeding false fears, and about fighting false comforts. The disciples were looking at these things right, I mean, it was on their doorstep. Like within their lifetime, he said, you guys are gonna experience this stuff happen. And he wanted them to hold on to the conviction of all the things that he had been teaching them and doing in and through them. And then the second thing it does uh, is it leads us to be dogmatic. See, being dogmatic, while calculation means you want to be right and you want to know, dogmatic means that you just refuse to be wrong. And being dogmatic causes you to want to spread the right thing, but not necessarily the, the good news. See, I, I feel like, especially in the Bible Belt and growing up as a pastor's son in the, in the Deep South, um, I feel like sometimes I have to play a little bit of cleanup for, for some things that have been taught and said before me because for decades, uh, we were really good in the church at preaching a workspace righteousness. Uh, we, we, we were good at teaching dogmas on how to dress, how to talk, how to live, how to vote, how to spend your money, and it really now made it harder in a lot of ways, I feel, as a 30-year-old as a in this culture, uh, to actually spread the good news and love of Jesus. Um, see, Jesus is calling his disciples here to be less dogmatic and more driven to share the good news in a way where God's presence would dwell on the earth in and through his people instead of in a temple. It uh, kind of reminded me, as I was thinking through this, of the, the Rescue Society. So the Rescue Society was a group of people that lived along a coastline 
that, that was really rocky and reef-ridden. And there were just, just constant stories of, of boats hitting the reef and hitting the rocks and people dying. And so they, it was just kind of a community group of people in this small village on the coast that formed, they came together and they, they named themselves the Rescue Society. And they would risk their lives to go out and save people that were drowning in these reefs and, and among the rocks. But as the years went by, new generations came into leadership and they became obsessed with perfecting their technique on how to save people. They became obsessed with having the right and newest state-of-the-art equipment to make sure the safety for their people and, and hoping that more people would be saved. They, they'd attend seminars, they'd go to conferences, they'd host trainings, they'd have community conversations about how they can best spend their money to get the newest equipment. And pretty soon, the techniques and the equipment became the focus of the Rescue Society. And one night, they were having, uh, they were having a training. They were hosting a training in their building that they had bought. And, and while they were meeting and having a training on how to save people, a passenger liner came through, hit the reef, and hundreds of people died. See, the Rescue Society had come to exist for its own perfection and not for the sake of others. And so what I hope today is we're, we're, we are looking at Jesus' words to be vigilant and to watch. It doesn't mean to become internally focused, but it's watching in a way to where we have a good news and a hope that we're called to take to the, to the world around us. You know, if you look at the, that first phrase in, in verse 24, it says, he leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge. Um, the disciples would have understood Jesus saying that about the master leaving the house, their immediate context, they're sitting on a, on a hill looking across at this huge temple. And like I said, the temple was the place that did two things. There were two things that, that, that they knew starting back in, in Genesis in the Garden of Eden and then all through Exodus with the temple and Mount Sinai and the tabernacle. The temple of God did two things. The first one is that the temple of God were, is where God dwelt with his people. And then the second thing it did was that it was where his people could bask in the presence of God. So if you look through all the imagery, like in Leviticus and Exodus, where most of us like give up our Bible reading plan for a while until we just come to 1 John or something, um, that's all about, like if you read about like the, the lamp being in front of the atonement seat, or, the, or the, literally the, the lid of salvation, sits there, and then there's the, the 12 loaves of bread that represent, it's, it's the bread, the, tw- the people of God basking in the presence and the light and the warmth of God's presence. That's what that means. And so... So when they're hearing Jesus say the master is leaving and putting the servants in charge of their house, what he's telling him to do is when you're watching, it's your job to protect what happens in the house. It's your job to protect the people, what's happening in the house. Well, for them, maybe would have been a little bit of confusion because of the whole priest system, the, the Levitical system, the, the sacrifices and all that. But, but for us, and now in hindsight, you know, we get Paul writing in 1 Corinthians about those who believe in Jesus and have placed their faith in him are now God's temple. We are now God's house because God's spirit dwells in us. See, we have the presence of God living in us when we place our faith in him. And so the way that, we, the, the way that Jesus now is speaking to us today, I think the take home for us is that when we're reading this to watch, Jesus is, is calling us to watch what's going on in our heart. See, the condition of our heart is vital. So let me just ask you, what's in there? What's in there? What's in your heart? The heart is like the command center for the inner part of who we are. 
It's like the overall operating system. We talked about the soul a bit last week. The heart was, is that place where your desires, your loves, your will comes from. And in Proverbs 4.23, it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So if you're wondering for now, what does it mean for us to watch? For us, it means watching your heart. See, this can sometimes be a little scary if you're honest with where your heart is, right? Because the human, the human condition left on its own terms is, is not in great shape. Like history tells us, right? Like humans left on their own terms to create power and structures normally ends in the opposite of life, right? Jeremiah in, in, in chapter 17, he says that the person who trusts in the heart of man for salvation is like a bush in the wasteland because the human heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Happy Sunday, glad you're at church today. <laughs> See, humans, when we don't know God, we naturally think that God's rule and reign in our life is oppressive. And we, we start to define freedom as something like, freedom is, is being you know, free of all kind of eternal commitments. Right? We, we think that salvation or, or freedom is only found whenever we can't have anybody telling us what's wrong or right and we do whatever we want. But when the love of God comes and is made a reality to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we, we, it changes. We see sin as the real tyrant. And we see that, that our heart was made, like if you go on through Jeremiah, it says that the one whose heart that belongs to the Lord as opposed to the bush in the wilderness, is like a tree planted by water. And, it isn't, and he said it isn't worried when the heat comes. Because later on in Jeremiah, it says that when, when the people of God place their faith and trust in him, it says that he will give his people a heart of flesh. Which is that picture, he says he'll take away the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. Which is that idea, instead of the barren wasteland and the dry, rocky, it's now a place where things can grow. Anyone who once thought that God was death to self came to find only self is really found in God. See, our hearts, when we come to know Jesus, Paul said that in Romans 5, that God's love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. See, as people of God, as we're called to watch our hearts because from our hearts, to guard our hearts, to watch it with all vigilance because from it flow the springs of life. If you get the picture here, God pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and so what, as people of God, is supposed to flow out of us to, to the world around us? It's God's love. In Ephesians 3, Paul again, he's, he's praying for that church in, Philippians, or, or in Ephesians, in Ephesus, and he says that he's praying for the church, and he says, I'm praying that out of God's glorious riches, may he strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So let me just ask you, what's in there? What's in there? What's in the heart? Jesus, back in, in Mark 13, 34, he says, tell the one at the door to keep watch. He says, keep watch. He says, don't let him find you sleeping. And at the end, he ends with that one word, watch, watch. Or maybe in your translation, it might say, be on guard or be careful. See, watching at the door, keeping vigilant watch over your heart is important. Because what we let into our heart and what we let take root in our heart is eventually what comes out, right? 
Like, have you ever been in a in conversation with somebody who's important to you? Like, maybe it's a spouse or a family member, or a really close friend, or or a colleague, or your boss, or something like that. And um, you're trying to do all the good listening tools. You know, you're giving them mm-hmm, the verbal feedback, the nods, showing that you're paying attention. You're you're listening more than you're talking. Anybody else? I'm not a robot. I promise. Like. But I just have to be better at being empathetic, right? You're trying to do all the empathetic listening things. Mm-hmm, yep. And then, and you're doing great. You're hearing, you're receiving all the things. And then you just, they say one thing that triggers you a little bit. And you can literally feel words come out of your mouth that you're like, no, 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 no. Like, the words are coming out and you're like, no, don't say that. You know, and you wish you could grab it. And then, and then the person, you, you can like see they heard what you said and they're like, oh. And you're like, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. But then the person you're talking to knows the Bible really well, and, and they were like, hey, Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. <laughs> Has that happened to me? I've been in a lot of small groups. Um, <laughs> seen it happen to other people. Um, but it's true, because what we have to protect, one, one way that we watch our heart, we guard ourselves, is that we have to protect what goes into our hearts. Right? Look at what he said. He said, stand at the door and watch. So he's making, making sure the right stuff goes into the heart. See, just like the watcher of the house was to watch for the master, we have to make sure that we're putting into our hearts things that don't dull our spiritual senses so that we no longer can, can understand how Jesus is working around us or we can't hear his voice or we can't feel him leading us anymore. Paul said in Colossians 3 that since we have been raised with Christ, since all the things we just talked about are a reality, that God's given us a new heart, that he pours his love into our hearts, that Christ dwells in our heart, So he says, since we have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. One of the Desert Fathers poemen said, to be on guard, to meditate within, and to judge with discernment. These are the three works of the soul. So let me just ask you again, what's in there? What's in there? What's in your heart? Because what we have to do is, not only do we have to protect what comes into our heart, we have to protect what takes root in our heart. Because there's a difference. Another way to, to say that is, is to kind of ask the question, uh, what or who are you attaching your heart to? Because we hated hearing this in, in kids, middle schoolers, students in here. When I, when I was your age, I hated hearing this too. Maybe your parents have said this, maybe they haven't. Uh, did anybody ever hear, and it just made you instantly angry, you are who your friends are? Like, you're getting the lecture from your parents, like, you gotta watch out who you hang out with, you know? All right, students, let me free you up a little bit. It's true. <laughs> All right, it's true. I hate to tell you, but it's true. It's true. The human life, it begins with the heart. Well, we, there's a book called The Other Half of Church. These, these two guys, uh, clinical psychologists and pastors, theologians, Jim Wilder and, and Michael Hendricks, they say this. They say that our brain draws life from our strongest relational attachments to grow our character and develop our identity. Who we love shapes who we are. Who we allow to attach in our hearts and who we attach our hearts to literally forms us into the people we become. We, don't, we like to think in our modern culture that everything starts with the brain first. Like I think, therefore I am, right? But the way that we're made, the reality is that, that who we are starts with the heart. 
So in the Old Testament, in the Bible, a lot of talk about this, who you attach your heart to is called idols or idolatry. When you attach your heart to things that are not God or things that are not of God, it says like in the Psalms and in Jeremiah again, it's like, hey, look at the people who worship those idols and create them out of wood and metal with their hands. It's like eventually they become like them. They become what they worship. They become what they've attached their heart to. There's two examples in the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically I want to talk about. There's Rebekah. So Rebekah was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Jacob eventually became, changed his name to Israel. He had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And she, we see a story where she played favoritism between her sons. She chose Jacob over Esau. She tricked her husband, which shouldn't be surprising. Rebekah literally means deception. Uh, uh, No slam on anybody named Rebekah. That's my mom's name. Love my mom. I'm just, that was my Hebrew Bible nerd overtaking my human Anyways, you're with me. Uh, The Bible does all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, She tricked her husband into overlooking Esau and his birthright, who was the firstborn son. Uh, She presumably, we believe, told Jacob one of Esau's secrets because Jacob knew to ran away from Esau. And then after she sends Jacob to live with her brother to hide from her own son, she has this crazy summary where she projects her pain on other people. She says that she would rather not live than deal with her daughter-in-law's. She had gotten to the point where she had attached her heart to the success of her son to the point where she said, it is better that my life is over than that my son is married to those women. See, her character was exposed right there. She had been formed into someone that was defined by who and what she attached her heart to. The idol of control in her heart was exposed at that moment. So if you want to know how you're doing with guarding your heart, you're like, Matt, I'd love a helpful thing to know how many idols I have in my heart. Um, For me, this has been a good one. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a a great book about idols, and he kind of had this helpful kind of formula. He lists out like 27 things. Um, I'm not going to list any of them, but but just something to kind of think through. If you fill in the blank at the end of this sentence, life only has meaning and I only have worth if, fill in the blank, fill in the blank. Maybe, maybe it's a need to feel needed. Maybe it means that you must be loved and respected by a certain people group. Maybe it's the need to have power and control that power over other people. Maybe it's an identity based on like mastering some part of your life, your job or a hobby or your career or something. So let me just encourage you this week to answer the question, what's in there? What's in your heart? See, most of us have something like that rooted in our heart. I I have, I definitely do. This week has been absolutely brutal for me doing this exercise before I get up here and preach it. Uh, Most of us have something wrong like that rooted in our heart. We just haven't had a situation to expose or challenge it yet, like Rebecca did. But we, I love uh, Psalm 73. I'm going to turn there. Feel free to if you want. Psalm 73, we get another look at somebody whose idol was being exposed. All right, so Psalm 73 is written by Asaph. Asaph was commissioned by King David to basically be like the worship pastor of all Israel. So his job was to be in the temple as, as the, David was making preparations for his son Solomon to build the temple. And so he commissioned Asaph uh, to write songs and write music that worship God to where 24-7 in the temple there could be people singing and praising God. All right, So this is like... 
like Asaph was like Chris Tomlin 15 years ago, all right? Like everybody knew his songs, everybody knew his name, he was the guy, okay? Look what he said, I love it. In verse one he says, surely God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart, just like a good pastor standing up on Sunday morning, amen, church? But I love, but I love what he said here. He said, in verse two he said, but, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. And I nearly lost my foothold because I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he goes on for a few verses to talk about, man, like people who have a ton of money, people who have everything they want, people who aren't in need. They have, they have everything, and, and, I, and he's like, man, and I, I buy it. Like, I believe it. Like, I believe that life would be better if I lived the way they lived and lived as if what I know God to say and want for me is not true. It's basically what he says. That's my summary, but that's what he says. I mean, verses 13 and 14, listen, look at what he said. He said, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. He basically says like, man, all the watching, all the guarding, all the vigilance of the heart that I've done is pointless because I'm still broke, I'm still hungry, I have needs and wants and desires that aren't filled and I'm looking at all these guys around me and they're getting everything they want and they're doing it out of evilness and wickedness. He said, verse 14, he said, all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Man, if I'd spoke like that, I would have betrayed your children, God. I would have betrayed it. But look what he said. Look, look how he doesn't let those things take root. Because he says, when I tried, in verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny, a.k.a. Man, then I got with God and I was reminded of reality. And I refused to let those things take root in my heart. See, the way he starts the psalm, that first verse is really important because that's how he's filtering the rest of his thoughts and processes, right? He, he starts out, he says, man, I know one thing to be true is that God is good and I'm not gonna let, I'm not gonna let my theological framework that's got rocked right now determine the worth and worthiness of God ruling over my heart because I know that God is good to those who he loves. See, where Rebecca attached her heart to her son and his success, Asaph attached his heart to God. Asaph tells us that, that he almost let the world win, but then he got back with God and he let the reality of who God is and what he has spoken over him to be true. And see, for us in a culture where the idea of fulfillment, it like changes with algorithms like every day and it tells us what to buy and what to watch and what to think about hot topics. Like we are a desperate people for centeredness. We talk about it all the time. We're looking to find it. We're starving for something more like, like are you guys waiting for the Super Bowl and you're just thinking like, there's gotta be more to this. Like there's gotta be more to, to life than, than the Super Bowl. Not the World Cup, but the Super Bowl, okay? Soccer's the Jesus sport. It's universal and it's the missionary sport. God's still dealing with me on some stuff, guys. But see, as we guard our hearts, as we as the people of God, the people who have placed our faith in Jesus, been called by him, as we guard our hearts, the place where God dwells in us and then overflows is the good news that God changes 
lives. See, as a society, we're searching for meaning beyond, beyond heart attachments that don't last past death. We're dying to find those things. In a culture that wants to be free, but it isn't, and in the quest to live for something bigger than ourselves, we actually end up enslaved to a system and exploiting others to achieve greatness. We, as the people of God, offer a message that on the cross, Jesus gave up power for service and paid the penalty for our unjust rejection of God and treatment of other people. See, we have a mission. We have a chance to offer hope and fulfillment not found anywhere else because we carry the very life of Jesus in our hearts. We carry the very words of Jesus in our hearts. We carry a message of hope and peace to a world that can't see past the next election cycle. It's life-changing. This message, the good news of Jesus, is what we attach our hearts to in the very person of Jesus. Paul wrote that the good news of Jesus is the power of God revealed to us in a culture that's seeking for existential identity that only leads to the exclusion of others and is impossibly fragile. Jesus offers an identity that is based on unconditional love and not on performance. In a culture that craves deep satisfaction and beauty that's let down by a broken world, Jesus offers a new freedom from being controlled by any force or object in the world, along with a foretaste and an assured promise of deep satisfaction and beauty in the future, even after death. See, our mission is to take this life-changing, eternity-altering good news of Jesus to the people around us. And this is the beauty of the church as we gather together, because where two or more gathered in his name, he's with them. Jesus is with us right now. And the beauty of it is, is, as in the parable, that kind of illustration in in Mark 13, 34, where it says, each one assigned to their own task. We are all given gifts and lives and abilities different to where we carry this thing out together and we watch with and for each other. Students, when I talk about the church, I don't just mean, like, you guys are not the church of the future. You're the church of right now. There's a good reason to believe most of the disciples were right around 15 years old. Okay? So it doesn't mean you're not ready for this. There's good reason, like, like there's a guy in Acts, they talked about a guy named Philip, and he had four daughters that still lived at home, which meant they were probably under 14, and it said they prophesied powerfully, okay? Okay, you as students, middle school and high school students, grade school students, you get to carry this power too. It's not something for your parents to do. So let me just kind of ask as we kind of close today, again, what's in there? What's in your heart? What's that thing or who's that person that you've attached your heart to that's forming you into their image? Are the rhythms of your life right now allowing you to watch? Maybe you don't have time to take inner inventory of your heart and soul right now because you're just too busy. When's the last time you took some time long enough to stop not only to ask God to speak to you but wait for God to speak for you? What's it going to take in your life to be watchful and to take inventory of your own heart? So here's what I want to do is kind of take an action step before we get into communion today. I'm going to encourage you guys, take two minutes each day this week. Two minutes. I'm going to do it with you. I've been doing it this week to practice. It's hard, but two minutes of complete silence with phone off and away. Literally set a timer for two minutes and just simply ask the question, Jesus, what are you trying to show me today? And just see what happens.
See what comes up in, from your heart that you can't stop thinking about, that you need to hand over to God. Take note of the things that you've attached your heart to that are getting revealed in that time. Maybe wake up early in the sunrise and pray the verse from Psalm 130 out loud. It says, I'm waiting for you, Lord, more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. As we, as we take communion, I mean, communion's a great way to kind of reorient our hearts and to check what's in our hearts. Paul even warns the, the Corinthian church, he says to check themselves and make sure what's in there before they took communion together because they had attached their hearts to so many things that they, they were unable for a while to live in rightness with God and other people. This is an opportunity when we take communion to replace what's in our hearts or at least to do what Asaph did and say, man, I didn't know how to make sense of all these things until I came into the sanctuary of the Lord and then I was reminded. Maybe today you need to be reminded of what God has for you. Maybe you need to be reminded that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living inside of you right now. And so as we take communion and we remember that, that Jesus, his body was broken for us, that his blood was spilled out for us, that his blood washed us so that our hearts can be pure. And that we remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 8, where he said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And so let's just take a minute while they play music and let's all close our eyes. Let's all close our eyes and just, you can say it out loud. You can quietly say it. You can just open your palms towards heaven. Lay it on the lap in front of you. And maybe as I was talking, there, there was something that came to your mind, an attachment of the heart that you need to ask for forgiveness for. That you need to say, Jesus, I'm sorry I've attached myself to those. Maybe as you're sitting there, you, you, you just can't remember the last time been reminded like Asaph did. You've been reminded of the reality of who God is and how much he loves you. Or maybe as you just heard me talking in, in Romans 5 where it says, the love of God is poured into my heart through the Holy Spirit. Maybe you just caught yourself saying, I want that right now. So as we're sitting here for a moment quietly before we take communion, ask Jesus to show you to what you've attached your heart to. And then in a moment as we take the bread and the juice and we're reminded of the reality that Jesus has set us free from sin, that he has set us free from shame and guilt and, and death, but through his life, through his death, through his dying on the cross and his resurrection, we've been given an opportunity for new life. Take this time to set your mind on the things above. So I'm going to pray for us, and there, uh, some of our elders are going to come up to, to hand the communion. And just as, as you're ready, just come up, grab the bread, grab the juice, go back to your seat, and then I'll lead us through communion. So Jesus, as, as we stand here, as we sit here as a people who have been called by your name, who have been called to take this good news, and who have been transformed by the reality of your Holy Spirit living in us. Jesus, help us and meet us in these places where we seek to attach our hearts to you. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen.
as we take the bread, we're reminded that Jesus' body was broken for us so that we can be made new. When we take the juice, we're reminded that his blood was poured out for us so that we can be made pure. Jesus, thank you for the the life-changing, eternity-altering, true reality that we can live as new people in your presence with you dwelling in us now and then with you forever, that you defeated death and sin on the cross and that you rose again and that same spirit who raised you from the dead is now living in us, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.